0: The Sunday Review with Tim Graham.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We'll be talking to Tom Scratchley, Musical Director at the Forest Row Choral Society, about their upcoming Mozart Requiem. Sue Hayward is back with advice on planning the perfect budget holiday this summer. And Nick Ray from Tinnitus UK will be telling us how exposure to loud noises can affect our hearing. Norman Wong will be talking to former NASA astronaut Bruce Melnick about his career and his new role at the Kennedy Space Centre in Florida. And Paul Tolmey will be chatting to Ariane Morell about what it's like living with alopecia, plus he'll also be finding out about the latest production at the Archway Theatre in Hawley, all coming up in this edition. Forest Row Choral Society's been running for over 60 years. They're a friendly non-audition choir with around 65 members. At the end of March, they're holding a concert at St Swithin's Church in East Grinstead. Their musical director, Tom Scratchley, is here to tell us more. Tom, welcome to the show. Now, you've been involved with the Choral Society since 1985. Tell us a little bit more about the choir and how it's evolved over the years.
0: It started, uh, yes, I think 1962, uh, and it was founded by my predecessor at Michael Hall School, uh, Cecil Cope, who started it um, as a group to support the music in in the school. And they were doing a performance of Bach's and John Passion. And so they wanted an adult chorus to support them. And and so it it grew out of that, really. It became an annual event. And uh, more and more people um, enjoyed singing with Cecil um, uh, because he was a a great guy and great composer and conductor. But then he... um, Resigned, he left well due to ill health. Actually, uh, in when I came along as his successor, Michael Horn, it was sort of almost it was a fairly natural progression for me to take over uh, from him. And uh, so, so the, we had weekly rehearsals at Kibrook Park, um, and then I left the school, so and uh, but carried on with the choral society. But we felt at that time that it was it would be a, a, a good move for us to become more community-minded and uh, move ourselves uh, into the village, uh, Forest Row. And so we started having our uh, rehearsals there and, and carrying on with the tradition of uh, choral singing. It means our repertoire is, is, is cl- classical in nature and we, we prepare biannual concerts uh, for uh, orchestra and soloists and explore the choral repertoire. Uh, by that I mean, you know, the kind of likes of uh, Handel's Messiah and Bach passions and Mozart masses and requiems and things like that. Uh, well, there was a large and generous uh, amount of repertoire there, and a lot of people like seeing it.
1: So, what does your role involve as musical director?
0: Uh, a lot of time is taken up with preparing the repertoire. Uh, getting the music, rehearsing the music uh, on a weekly basis. We we rehearse for two hours each week on a Tuesday night at Forest Road Primary School, and uh, uh, that's 7:30 to 9:30. Um, and at the moment, the 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 numbers have have bulged this term. We're doing the Mozart Requiem, which is a popular work in itself. But news has got around that that I'm leaving, so a lot of people from the past. I've wanted to uh, be involved in this final concert uh, on the 25th of March in St. and um, So we've we've grown, and uh, it seems to be growing every week. So uh, we'll have to stop at some point.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Now you mentioned about the concert you've got coming up. How long does it take to put something like that together?
0: Well, we we split the the year into three terms, and the uh, the the first term. We do a concert uh, in November and and then a, a Christmas concert. And then the Easter term is uh, when we do our, our biggest work. Uh, and uh, for that, we we, we rehearse. Uh, so we for, for this concert, for instance, the one we're doing on the 25th of March, we'll have had 12 rehearsals, 12 two-hour rehearsals um, each week.
1: Now, it may be a little late for people to join you for the forthcoming concert, but for future concerts, are you looking for additional singers and do they need to have any particular skills or experience before they can join?
0: Oh, definitely. So the, at the beginning of the what we call the autumn term, which is the beginning of September, people come along. We're not an audition choir. We are very much trying to develop the community event and... and encourage everybody to come and, at first thing, have a go. They don't have to commit themselves straight away. But, uh, I mean, it's helpful. it's helpful if you do have a little bit of musical background or knowledge. Otherwise, there are other choirs uh, where they, they, they sort of rehearse Viva Voce and uh, more in the sort of barbershop tradition and pick it up and learn by rote without music. But there are, there's a lot of uh, interest in those sort of choirs these days, community choirs. The sort of thing that Gareth Malone does.
1: So remind us again about the concert and when and where it's taking place. Um, so it's on the,
0: uh, Saturday the 25th of March in St Swithun's Church at 7pm. And there's an entry charge of £15, pounds, uh, which is uh, very good value because we, we provide good programme uh, with a full orchestra and uh, four professional soloists.
1: That's great. Tom, thanks so much for your time today and all the best for the concert. Nice talking to you, thanks. And as a reminder, the Mozart Requiem will be performed by the Forest Row Choral Society on Saturday, the 25th of March at St Swithin's Church in East Grinstead at 7 pm. Entry is £15 and you can buy tickets on the door. For more information about the upcoming concert and the choir in general, visit forestrowchoral.org.uk. That's forestrowchoral.org.uk. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. As the cold weather continues, many of us have turned our minds to planning our summer holidays and some long-awaited warmth. But with the current cost-of-living crisis, it might feel like an unaffordable luxury – so how can we still plan for a great holiday and save some money at the same time fortunately personal finance and consumer expert sue hayward is here with some advice Sue, welcome to the show is it possible to plan a budget holiday while still making it an experience to remember
2: absolutely I think the trick to it is doing your homework and planning, because if you just go and book the first thing you see, it might well break the bank. So it's very much a case of being as flexible as you can, not only with destinations, but also with dates. I mean, we all know that school holidays and any dates around Easter holidays, bank holidays and things like that tend to be more expensive. So I would say the key is flexibility. So, for example, if you're going with cheap budget flights, then playing around with dates Sometimes going midweek can work out a whole lot cheaper than actually doing the traditional weekend break. And rather than doing a Saturday to Saturday or Sunday to Sunday approach, try for midweek. And even sometimes, particularly if you're booking flights and a villa separately, you might end up thinking you can get a really good deal just by docking one day. So you may go for six days instead of a seven day break and you may find you get a cheaper deal that way. And equally with some hotels and apartments, sometimes you can get the third night free if you stay for two, depending on where you're going.
1: So do you have any top tips on how to find the best deals for travel and accommodation?
2: Absolutely. I mean, certainly if you're looking for flights, I mean, I always look at the budget airlines. But equally, it's worth just plugging the details of where you want to go and your dates into to google flights into sites like Skyscanner, just in case because sometimes crazy as this sounds it's actually cheaper or it can be to fly out to a destination with one airline and come back with another still to the same uk airport still going to the same place but just because of the way flight tickets work doesn't always work that way but sometimes it's worth looking at that option and of course i would say with the budget flights make sure you check by luggage limits because there's no kind of one size fits all when it comes to cabin bags or bags in the hold and nobody wants to think they've booked a really cheap budget flight to get clobbered with kind of 50 to 60 quid at the gate simply because their bag is two inches too big and while you might have a sort of soft bag you can ram into the little cage and make it fit if you've got big chunky wheels on your cabin case short of kind of soaring them off at the gate there is no way you're going to make that fit if it's too big
1: Yeah, it does seem that with more and more airlines, there are hidden costs for checking in bags or selecting seats that can bump up the initial price that you see.
2: Absolutely. Do you know what? I never reserve my seats. I know it always comes up with a little option. Do you want to pay more for this? Do you want to pay? I mean, I booked some flights the other day with EasyJet and it was coming up, did I want meal vouchers? Did I want all sorts of different things? I never pre-book the seats. What I always do is stick a note in my diary 30 days before the flight because that's when check-in opens Slightly different days and time limits with different airlines, but with EasyJet 30 days, stick a note in my diary. And to be honest, when there's been two, three of us, I've never had a problem. We've always managed to sit together. So I'm always happy to kind of busk it on that. Obviously, if you're flying long haul, very often choosing the seats is part of the deal. Um, And a little tip there, just rather than taking a chance, is if you look at a brilliant website called seatguru.com, it gives you the layout of all the planes so if you are going long haul you can check which seats if your travel agent says to your particular seat number you know 25j you can then look it up to see is that near the toilet is it near the emergency exit whereabouts in the plane is it and it just gives you a bit of a heads up on where you're going to be sitting so you don't find that you sat there and you're probably the only seat on the plane without a window or something
1: So flights and accommodation aside, when you get to a destination, what sort of activities can you do that aren't going to break the bank?
2: Obviously the beach. It's pretty much free. Unless, of course, if you're staying at one of those all-inclusive hotels, you'll often get water sports and activities, maybe even days out thrown in. But if you've done your own DIY holiday, then obviously that the beach is usually free. Your apartment may have its own pool. And you can often find in places that hotels locally will let non-residents go in and use the pools simply because they're keen for you to buy a drink while you're there. You might have some chips or something like that. So don't feel you've got to stick just to your own pool. Look around you might be able to use someone else's. If you are doing any active activities like maybe you're going to the local water park always book in advance because booking in advance means you usually save money on tickets and sometimes you can save with doing little tours you might find a little place down the road that will throw in the price of the minibus to get you there and the ticket maybe even lunch as well so it's worth looking at that as well as the diy option And if you do want to do a day trip, sometimes it's going to be a lot cheaper just to hire a car for a day rather than, say, if there's four of you all paying to go on the little tour bus. And personally, I'm never very keen on the the whole tour bus thing. I prefer to hire a car and do it myself. Local companies can be brilliant that way for a car hire. And depending where you are, Spain, Greece, somewhere like that, you may even be able to have a haggle on the day. Uh, One thing I would say, double check the insurance you get with hire cars. You usually always get something called collision damage waiver which covers the bulk of the damage, just in case you have a prang. But sometimes it's worth prepaying before you leave the UK, something called excess protection insurance, it costs about two, three quid a day if you buy at this end, and it just protects the excess. Once again, just in case you have a prang out there, it means that the excess is protected, so that's a little tip. Because if you buy it through the car hire companies, particularly if you're hiring one at the airport rental desk, they can charge sky high rates of kind of twenty quid plus a day, which is crazy.
1: Again, it's just going back to being aware of those hidden costs, I guess.
2: Absolutely, you know, and it's just—I think it's just taking the time. You know, we all get, for example, you know, the airport rental desk. You have booked your hire car, you're there you know you're really eager to go maybe the kids are sort of desperate for their first ice cream sometimes it's just taking a minute to think hang on a second have I got everything I need am I being overcharged for anything do I need all these add-ons and just taking the time to do it and the more planning and preparation you've done kind of stands you in good stead so you're not going to be caught out on the spur of the moment or caught off guard by different charges that you weren't expecting.
1: How about food and restaurants in your destination? Have you got any tips on how to get good value there?
2: I think one of the things I often say is if you go out for lunch, it's often cheaper than the dinner menu. Obviously, this will depend on the resort and the restaurant, but very often if the restaurant does a lunch menu, it's likely to be cheaper. So go out and have your your main meal at lunchtime if you're going to do that. And some places do such massive platefuls that you can actually get away with either sharing between two of you, or even going for a starter each. I mean, certainly I love Greece. I go there all the time. And whenever I'm in Greece, I often just have a starter as my main meal because the places we go to, they're so generous with their portions. You can yeah, you a know, starter for sort of three, four quid. It's great. You're saving the money. You're not wasting it by ordering a huge meal. And very often they will give you a little dessert afterwards free or on the house. So just be mindful of sometimes if the portions are big and certainly if you're heading to the States, they are mammoth sized portions very much. I mean, I ended up having a side of macaroni cheese once in New York and I couldn't finish it. And it cost the equivalent of about four quid, just the side dish. So be mindful of the portions. If you've got children with you, often a lot of places will do kids' meals. And if they don't, once again, you can maybe get a starter each for them, something like that. Um, all-inclusive can be good if you've got kids because it does sometimes give them the chance to dip in and out, try different things without wasting money but I would say depending on where you're going all-inclusive in some cases can be a really good deal if you're going further afield like maybe the Caribbean but certainly within Europe sometimes when you do the number crunching it can work out cheaper to do flights accommodation and meals yourself rather than the all-inclusive which tends on the European trips just to be the buffet option rather than the individual restaurants and places to eat.
1: Now, you mentioned that Greece is one of your favourite destinations. Are there places that people should consider if they're looking for a budget friendly option?
2: I mean, certainly around you, um, Bulgaria and Croatia, I would say, you know, parts of Spain can be a really good deal, but certainly the Canaries, you know, can sometimes be quite expensive. So if you're on a, a tight budget, once again, do check the different options you might find a particular deal on a a hotel somewhere in the canaries but i would say bulgaria croatia are all good places to look for all got great beaches and certainly summertime they're all going to be warm so you're not going to be sitting there shivering in a a coat or having gone somewhere i mean places for example you see a lot of people think oh dubai will be fantastic in the summer they do have some deals for dubai mid-august but temperatures tend to be about 45 degrees so unless you're prepared for that which is going to be hugely hot, you know, it's worth checking out the climate as well as the deals where you're going to.
1: Now, no matter how much you meticulously plan, there are going to be unexpected expenses. How do you factor that into your holiday planning?
2: I would say i mean always i always pack a couple of credit cards i don't intend to be using them up to the max but if you've got two credit cards it means if for any reason one is rejected or because of the bank and the credit card systems or sort of anti-fraud systems if for any reason they stop one of them it means you've got a second one and it does also mean that if in some dire circumstance you needed some extra cash you've got two cards there that you can use. So I would always say have at least one card, ideally two, that you can use if there are, even if you just, you know, want to spend another day at the water park or something and you think, oh, we haven't got the cash for it. And while I always think it's great taking cash with you, I would say check your travel insurance. If you go taking heaps of cash, a lot of the travel insurance policies may only cover you for around £200 cash, sometimes less with the cheaper policies. So worth checking that and not taking all your cash out every day making the most of the hotel or the apartment safe to store it in Um, and when you are taking credit cards there's a couple of them that don't charge fees because of course some debit and credit cards do charge hugely expensive fees when you are abroad so ones like the Halifax Clarity credit card and the uh, Barclays Rewards Visa both don't charge fees for holding wool machines or on your spending. So it's worth checking out those. Uh, And if you just speak to your own bank and say, look, this is the card I've got, how much will it cost me if I use it abroad? Just check that out in advance.
1: Some great advice there. What would you say to someone who is perhaps planning a budget trip for the first time this summer?
2: I think they can be great. I mean, the last few times that that we've been, I say, using Greece as example, we've booked budget flights, We've done a hire car from the airport and in fact once we just did the hire car from the airport to the resort because it was actually cheaper than a taxi and the local company that we used was actually quite grateful that we were bringing a car back from the airport to the resort because of course the majority of people wanted to leave them at the airport so we got a really good deal we booked the apartment separately in fact crazy as this sounds it was cheaper to book the flight and the apartment separately than it was as a package deal because when we costed it up thinking a package deal might be cheaper it was actually more expensive we got a better deal on the room doing it separately so I would say be prepared to play around because you can actually save quite a bit of money and the money we saved I think it was about 50 60 quid then can go towards your, your holiday spends ice creams you know drinks by the pool and that lovely meal
1: out fantastic and um, where can people go to get more hints and tips from you
2: either follow me on twitter sue hayward media or my website sue
1: thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insight about budget holidays.
2: Brilliant. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: As Sue mentioned, for more details on getting the best holiday deals this year, you can follow on the socials at Sue Haywood Media or visit suehaywoodmedia.com. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. The charity Tinnitus UK is calling on people to protect their ears from loud noise in the workplace and during leisure activities. One in seven adults are affected by tinnitus and new data from the charity reveals that over a third of people with the condition say it was caused by loud noise exposure. To tell us more, I'm joined by Nick Ray from the charity. Nick, welcome to the show. Can you start by explaining what tinnitus is?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, Tinnitus is when you experience uh, ringing or buzzing, whining or other noises that are in one or both of your ears or your head that isn't coming from something outside. Um, the sound's actually generated by the auditory system in the brain, um, not by the ears. Um, everyone's experience of tinnitus is different. Some people hardly notice the sound, um, but for others it can be really distressing and have a big impact on their quality of life and can affect sort of mood, sleep, concentration, work, social activities, all that kind of thing.
1: So what do people tell you as a charity about the ways that tinnitus affects their everyday lives?
3: Well, a lot of people, it can be very distressing. Uh, You know, it's not unusual for our helpline staff to be taking calls from people who are in tears with frustration, fear, anger, low mood. You know, for some people, it affects well, they're listening to it 24-7. They don't get a respite from it. And if you imagine something annoying, you know, the sound of cutlery scraping on a plate, for example, and you were listening to that all day, every day, you'd have some kind of feelings like that too. We do know some people are thinking about their tinnitus all the time, and about a quarter of people, they can even have suicidal thoughts coming from living with tinnitus.
1: And what do we know about tinnitus? What's the main cause of it?
3: Well, we don't know for certain what causes tinnitus and why some people experience it and why some people are distressed and, and others aren't. What happens with our brain is it's listening to the sounds going on around us all the time, every little sound, and then deciding which ones it wants to listen to. Uh, normally, it ignores all the sounds that aren't important. So, for example, um you're in your kitchen, you're not hearing the clock ticking, you're not hearing the fridge working, but you're hearing the sound of the potatoes boiling over, because that's important. And tinnitus is a sound that the brain would probably normally ignore. Um, And while we don't know for certain what causes the brain to, to focus in on tinnitus or what actually causes the sounds to start in the first place, the most common triggers are hearing loss, um, exposure to loud noise, stress and anxiety, uh, ear infections, earwax buildup and neck and jaw problems and also we're now beginning to know that um, tinnitus is a symptom of long Covid.
1: So I guess as we don't really know what causes it there's no real cure for it either.
3: There isn't a cure as such you know there isn't a medication that you can take there isn't a device that absolutely certainly 100 percent will remove it but in most cases tinnitus improves or even goes away with time because the brain actually learns to forget the sound again you know in the same way we're filtering out traffic noise the fridge noise whatever and that process is called habituation And it's one of these things, it's a bit difficult to predict how long this process will take. And even if it's a slow process, it does get better for most people. And there are things that people can do to help that process along and to make tinnitus less intrusive or even to encourage it to go away.
1: What are some of the treatments that can help manage the condition?
3: Well, First, I'll say, because everyone's tinnitus is different, what works for one person may not work for somebody else. And sometimes you have to do more than um, one thing and things may take time before you notice a change. So these need to be done sort of little and often. Um, So some of the most useful things you can do are using hearing aids, if you've got any hearing loss, and even that, even if that's a really mild hearing loss that wouldn't normally need a hearing aid, using a hearing aid if you have tinnitus can be helpful. Playing quiet background sounds, such as natural sounds, a fan, a music, uh, music or the radio, played at a lower level than your tinnitus, can encourage the brain to listen to the more interesting sound instead of the tinnitus. And trying relaxation techniques because stress plays a A big role in the development and persistence of tinnitus so breathing exercises meditation exercises mindfulness they can all help and then sharing your experiences either with you know others in the same situation for example a self-help group or by talking to a counsellor
1: so it would seem the best thing really is to avoid some of the risks associated with tinnitus What did your research tell you about people's awareness and and use of hearing protection?
3: Well, we were were quite surprised. We knew that exposure to loud noise is a common cause for tinnitus. But what we didn't realise was just how many people think that exposure to loud noise is behind their own tinnitus. And 35% of people uh, believed that their tinnitus was caused by loud noise in our survey. And this could mean that 2.7 million adults in the UK have their condition triggered by noise. And that is the one thing we can control. We can't control necessarily earwax buildup, ear infections, hearing loss due to old age, but we can control how and how much noise we're exposed to.
1: Now, people may be a little bit more aware of noise in the workplace, but what are some of the activities that can cause hearing damage when we're out and about generally?
3: There's all kinds of things, and actually even at work, people aren't necessarily using hearing protection appropriately um, in all situations. So some of the situations where people might be exposed to noise and they've not necessarily realize that it could reach dangerous levels are things such as motorcyclists because when you're out on your bike the sound can reach levels that can be dangerous particularly as you know you're not necessarily going to just be on your bike for five minutes you might be out all afternoon um, because noise exposure is not just about volume it's about duration as well And then, of course, if you're into DIY or gardening, I mean, power tools such as drills can reach 100 decibels, which is 20 decibels over the safe sound level. And our research showed that only a quarter of DIYers regularly or sometimes used hearing protection. And then there's things that you might not realise can get very loud. So if you're travelling in and around London, some tube lines, can actually be louder than the drill and reach almost 110 decibels and yet only a fraction of people maybe one in 10 people said that they used hearing protection and you know bizarrely some hair dryers can reach 95 decibels at high speed but again less than one in 10 people use hearing protection when drying their hair now you know if you've got long thick hair you can be using a hairdryer for 15 minutes and at that kind of duration and that kind of sound level, you could be damaging your hearing.
1: So what is the charity's advice then to people who are being exposed to loud noises?
3: Well with um say to people, always wear appropriate hearing protection when you're in a loud space or you're working with loud equipment. And that doesn't have to be you know there's all kinds of hearing protection it doesn't have to be the big over the ear ear defenders although sometimes they're the most suitable you can get little very discreet in-ear earplugs um, and they don't have to muffle the sound if you buy something like musicians earplugs rather than the foam ones you can hear everything as clearly as you could but just at a safer level obviously try and avoid being exposed to excessive noise for loud periods so take breaks take breaks if you're listening to loud music or if you're at a venue Um, every sort of hour or so it's a good idea to give your ears a break if you have hearing protection obviously wear it appropriately and replace it if it's worn or damaged and then also have your hearing checked regularly in the same way you would go and have your vision checked or your blood pressure checked
1: some excellent advice there. Where can people go to find out more information?
3: Well, our website um, at tinnitus.org.uk has lots more information about noise exposure and hearing protection. And we also have a team of trained advisors who are able to offer <clears throat> help and support um, via live web chat on that website or on 0800 018 0527.
1: That's great. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. A reminder of that contact information again. Their website is tinnitus.org.uk. That's T-I-N-N-I-T-U-S.org.uk. Or you can call them free on 0800 018 0527. That's 0800 018 0527. We'll post all the details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Our fascination with space exploration continues at pace, with plans to take astronauts back to the moon and onto Mars. Norman Wong was lucky enough to chat to former astronaut Bruce Melnick about his career and his new role as a visitor complex ambassador at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida.
4: I was in the sixth grade when Alan Shepard first flew And uh, that was the first time I thought about, wow, how cool would that be to fly in space? And from that point on, my mother encouraged me to do the best I could in education. And someday I might be able to get into college since no one else in our family had ever been to college. And I was able to get into the Coast Guard Academy and get an advanced degree while I was going through flight training. And in 1977, when... The shuttle program was starting to select astronauts. I started applying, and I applied uh, six times after that for 10 years. I applied every chance I could, and in 1987, I was finally selected by NASA as the first Coast Guard astronaut, so perseverance paid. What are some of your fondest
5: memories from your career with NASA?
4: Well, just getting there the first year, a lot of people don't realize about the training experience, but it took uh, it takes at least three years of training before you uh, were qualified to fly on a space shuttle. The first two years was more or less generic training, and the third year was training for your specific mission. And that third year, uh, you spent the whole week with your crew every day, s- six days a week sometimes, training for that flight but that first year with the generic training was one of my most memorable experiences you know i thought i was just going to learn how to about flying in space now the space shuttle flew but we we had to be meteorologists we had to be oceanographers we had to be photographers we had to be astronomers we had to be physiologists we had to be almost psychiatrists and psychologists uh, uh, it was is a firehose approach to every ologyographyonomy you can think about just so you could be prepared for that space flight because you never knew what kind of experiment or uh, ex- experiences, experiments, or scientific things you were going to do while you're on that space shuttle. So that was one of my most memorable experiences, even before I got to fly was the education that I received before I got to fly. Then once I launched into space, uh, obviously, the, the the first launch going uphill is just an amazing ride, but when I finally got to space in zero-G after main engine cutoff, or MECO, and I got to see the Earth for the first time from space, it's, it's burnt in my memory. I'll never forget that, it, looking back at this planet, so beautiful, so blue, with white clouds and the black vacuum of space above it—that's that's, that's my, one of my most memorable experiences.
5: What does it take to become an astronaut, and what advice would you give to those looking to do it as a career in the future?
4: Well, first thing is be persistent. Um, get the best education you can possibly get, and if you're younger, do what your mom says. Uh, but the main thing is is pursue a career that you know you're going to enjoy just on the outside chance you don't become an astronaut. You know, if you think back to, you know, 1961 when Yuri Gagarin first flew, there's still been only just a few, a handful of people over 600 that have flown into space from all countries, from the paying passengers to the NASA astronauts, just over 600 of us have had that experience. So the selection process is really tough. So. Anyway, make sure that you're, you have established yourself in a career that you enjoy if on the outside chance you don't get selected, but keep trying and keep advancing your resume, keep accomplishing things that make you stand out amongst your peers.
5: Can you tell me about your work as an ambassador for the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex?
4: I'll tell you, it's the best job in the world for an astronaut. The KSC Visitor Complex is, is the only place on Earth where you can view the past, experience the present, and look into the future. Uh, we've got exhibits there, you know, going back to pre-man space flight where you can see the, the, the developmental rockets that are actually real rockets in our rocket garden. Uh, you can you almost touch them, and there's a, a, a communicator that will brief you on those rockets. And in that rocket garden, we also have the the Mercury program rockets, the Gemini capsules, and then we have a Saturn V in its own building where you can actually see a genuine Saturn V rocket that would have gone to the moon had the program not been canceled. And then we have the Atlantis exhibit which is the actual space shuttle Atlantis that's sitting in its own building and there's an educational briefing on the way into Atlantis and you can get up almost to touch the whole vehicle And you get to see this spaceship that flew 33 times into space. It's an amazing, it's just, it it makes your eyes water when you see this space shuttle revealed when you first walk in. And then around Atlantis, we've got simulators so you can practice docking the space shuttle to the space station. You can operate the robotic arm. And then moving on more to the present, we've got our new gateway exhibit there that has actually flown flight hardware. We've got a... uh, uh, Falcon 9 rocket hanging from the ceiling that it's actually the Falcon rocket that launched the Tesla car on its way to the sun. Uh, we've got other flight hardware that's flown in space and we have full scale mock-ups in there. Also to, to go on into the future, we've got four rides that can take you to different places in the galaxy. They could take you to, to their and their, their motion simulators. You go out into this dome, and you feel it. You, you can take a ride through the valleys of Mars. You can get out to a nebula. You can get out to a dwarf star and buy uh, Saturn and, and Jupiter. So uh, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, it's a total two-day experience. You can't do everything there in one day. And it's and for me being the ambassador there, it's like a homecoming every time I walk around the, the park. It's it's a smile on my face to see all these people experience as close as they can to actually being an astronaut and going in space themselves.
5: How important are the attractions such as the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex in inspiring the next generation of astronauts?
4: Well, I I think it has to be. You know, there's so much um, out there that's make-believe. What's beautiful about our visitor complex is that it's all real. It's what's going on and what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, if you're a young person and... And, you know, it's one thing to do all the make-believe stuff and be entertained. But when you get to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, you're actually looking at, wow, this thing really flew in space. I can go do that. I can meet an astronaut. There's an astronaut there every day that they can speak to and ask questions to. Uh, it, it's, it, it lets, I think it, if there was something like that uh, when I was younger— uh, I was fortunate enough to get to go, but if I had something like that, I'd really be inspired to go, thinking it, there was a possibility that I could experience that.
5: Bruce, what do you think the future holds for space travel and space
4: exploration? Oh, I think I think we're just getting started. Uh, I I really like the fact that NASA has uh, more or less handed off the space transportation business to the private sector. You know, they did all the development work. They proved that it could be done uh, relatively safely. It's never going to be 100% safe because you're basically trying to control an explosion through a nozzle to get there. But um, now that they've handed off the regular space transportation to the commercial sector, NASA's gone back to its roots, and that is the exploration. And that's why we've got the Artemis program, and we're going to get back to the moon. You know, we've, got, we've already flown the Artemis the first time. Next year, we're going to fly an Artemis crew around the Earth and around the moon. And then the following year, we're going to actually land people on the moon. So NASA's exploring, and the civilian uh, sector, the private sector, is providing space transportation to space station and low-Earth orbit and even for tourism. I think the future is bright.
5: Do you have to pinch yourself sometimes, just thinking that you were able to do all of this? Oh, I, I can't believe it.
4: You know, I wake up, I wake up every morning, and I just there's not a a day goes by that I don't think about how lucky I feel I am. I it, it's hard to believe. You know, I, I'm just a normal human being, and to have been able to have that experience, like you say, I've got to pinch myself to believe that I really did that.
5: Where can people go to get more information about the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex?
4: Well, we've got a website, ksc.com, and everything you need to know is on there. It'll tell you what the upcoming launches are, and I've got to mention that. It looks like we're going to have up to 80 launches this coming year, or this year that we're in right now. We had uh, 57 launches last year, and that's another thing about the Visitor Complex. If you come and spend a week in Florida, which is where we're located, uh, odds are you're going to get to see a, a live launch. Um, so KSC.com will tell you everything you need to know. Who the astronaut of the day is going to be, and all the other things that are opportunities that are available to you.
1: Former NASA astronaut Bruce Melnick speaking there to Norman Wong. For more information on the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, visit KSC.com. That's KSC.com. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his mid-morning show on Tuesday, Paul Tolmey heard from Ariane Morell about what it's like living with alopecia.
6: My journey started uh, over 20 years ago. I was 12 at the time. Uh, I remember going to the hairdressers. I used to have my hair curled uh, probably once a month when my mum went for a hair, hair p- appointment. Uh, the hairdresser noticed had a patch. She'd mentioned it to my mum. Um, at the time, my mum didn't want to say anything to me in case it grew back. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't, and the patches got bigger, and I noticed. Uh, it started thinning, And but it, it took about just half a year for it all to to fall out with a few um, long hairs still in there, so we, we decided to shave my head. Uh, during that time... Just a few months after my first patch, my sister's hair fell out and uh, she was four years older. We went to a number of doctors. My mum paid privately as well because she wanted to get down to the root of the problem. Uh, The doctors said there was no hope. It it could have been said privately instead of in front of a 12 year old, because that put me down quite a bit. Uh, So we tried a number of treatments, but they didn't work. Uh, so at that stage, probably by the time I was thirteen, well, yeah, during that time, I, I had I got my first blonde wig, and I was um, brown before. Uh, so with the treatments not working, I decided not to go through with any more treatments because it was disheartening. Um, so we got into a lot of support groups, Alopecia UK. We met through a lot of uh, other charities. I was invited to a Wales uh, convention and there was a lot of other people with the same condition, uh, young kids. It felt like a second family to me because we were all in the same boat. We, I had a lot of support around me and I didn't want to leave that convention because I thought I was the only one in my area at the time that had it. It was not common uh, to, to see someone with alopecia. A lot of people still hide it to this day when they're not that confident to show show their head so
7: do you, do you think that if you hadn't have been there you you just still struggle on your journey?
6: I would have coped with it in my own way. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know how long that would have taken. It would have probably taken a lot longer um but we were determined that I needed support
7: how how quickly did you have to adapt to, to sure. did it just come to terms with it straight away or
6: no it 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 took quite a few years, but with everyday life, you have to get on with your day-to-day tasks and, and going to school. Um, I didn't take it very well in high school because I was bullied quite a lot. And before I had my wigs, we they used to, I was a prime target back then. So a lot of boys would prompt each other to pull my bandanas off in the, in the corridor. Or this one time, this boy was behind me on the bus and we were getting off and I just felt my bandana come off. And I looked around at this boy and he just had a smirk on his face and I could have punched him, you know, uh, but I I wasn't confrontational back then. Yeah, so that was a particularly hard time. I learned to adjust because that's who I am. I'm I'm quite confident. Um, With my sister, her hair didn't take that long to grow back. So I was happy for her that her hair grew back because she wasn't as confident and social as me, so she would have found it a lot harder to adapt to it if it hadn't grown back now. Uh, So I just learned to deal with it. I I found my support groups. I had my wigs on. I went to college. I studied hairdressing and it was nice to be near hair. I found my first boyfriend. He was very accepting. I think for him it was a novelty to be going out with someone he didn't have hair, and it didn't bother him. And for a lot of men, at probably 19, it doesn't actually bother them. They they accept it, from from my experience anyway. Uh, I went into, I went, I started working for Debenhams at 18, and again, everyone's really accepting. The only part that bothered me was through summer when it'd be really hot. And even though I wanted my wigs on, because I like styling them, I wanted to feel attractive. Uh, but when you're working retail and you have no aircon, you you want to take it off. So that was really hard for me to put bandanas on, because I didn't feel attractive when I had them on. So that was quite hard. Yeah, if I could have taken it off, then I would have. But I just didn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to, to take it off. Do
7: you find that you have to adapt to to, you know, even the most basic, like you said, with air conditioning, you, you have to, uh, even if you don't want to, you find that you have to.
6: Yeah. Uh, uh, when I was doing, uh, I have two kids, so when they were younger, you know, I'd do the, the school run and, and I'd power walk to Devonham's into town, which isn't very far where I live. Uh, and I would used to run my wrists under freezing cold water just to cool myself down before I got to the shop floor. So it was little things like that that I, I could work with to cool myself down quickly. Uh, in the summer, I, I just, I liked it and lumped it and I, just, I put my bandanas on because it, I felt a lot better mentally having them on. I'd get questioned a lot f- uh, from customers. I've helped uh, someone with cancer through their treatment because I thought I had cancer and they came up to me, which was really brave of them
7: is that um, quite a common misconception that you' that you've yeah. got yeah you've got cancer but you actually haven't
6: it is yeah yeah the for a lot of people when you come across someone like me your your first thought is are they going through treatment I want to ask them because I might you know they might be going through treatment so they mm. might want to ask me which I have no problem with because we'll go through the same thing but different conditions uh, but yeah that is the first thought my husband Tim with now his very supportive um he had someone come up to him and ask how long i had left once uh <laughs> so you don't you don't expect someone to just come out with that question so he was quite taken back and he said no she's got alopecia um <laughs> so when he told me that's like whoa okay that's you don't step over that mark when you're asking that question you know that's uh yeah, that's a bit tricky.
7: We were talking just before we started recording and you you, you, you used the term alopecian.
6: Yeah, I, I like the word alopecia because it just felt it sounds fun. When you've accepted your condition, you make a joke of it. And it's always been the butt of my jokes since I can remember. Uh, so, yeah, I like the, the word alopecia. Uh, to some other people, it might come across offensive. So, I don't brag about openly in public that's just my little thing for me it's like you can give your wigs a name for themselves like betty or or, or sarah i've never done that with my wigs because they're, they're just a headpiece they're not something that i would you know I'd, I'd keep so yeah for me i I just refer myself to an alopecia because it's just fun and and with my name it can be hard to remember, so I could just say, just call me alopecian. <laughs>
7: what would you say to 12-year-old Ariane if you, could, if you could go back and tell her, this is what's going to happen to you? Would you cope with it any differently?
6: I think it would give my 12-year-old a bit of an insight of what's to come, but I don't think it would have changed my feelings back then if I went back to myself, because it's very when it happens to you then, it's it's very raw. So it's very hard to see the lighter side of it because it's quite a long time to wait. Um, but I would say to her, just keep your chin up, and if anyone bullies you, just fight back because they're in the wrong. You're not.
7: Now that we are in, you know, we've looked at the past. Let's look at the future. You're in a lovely house. You've got, you know, you're, you're married with children. You're a businesswoman. What's the future looking like for you now?
6: Uh, The future's a lot better. Mm. For one, I don't need to go to doctors and ask for a prescription every time and they're looking into it because they haven't a clue what I'm talking about. I don't need to worry about wigs anymore. I don't need to worry about bandanas. I don't need to worry about walking out the door thinking twice about someone looking at me. I'm still very wary when I go outside every single time. When I go into a shop every single time, I'm very conscious that people are looking at me, but they're looking at me for the right reasons because I have a, a great big tattoo on my head for one, which happened in twenty twenty one. So that's that's um, boosted my confidence a lot.
7: It's a, it's a lovely tattoo actually. It's it's a it's a couple of butterflies and I, I'm not sure what flowers yeah. they are, but they're yeah,
6: butter, blue black, blue butterflies and blossoms, and it covers half of my head. Mm. The the butterflies are also my um trusted care logo. So it's incorporated for sentimental reasons. Mm. It's it cost a lot of money to do to get but it's worth it. Yeah. And it's I haven't had a tattoo before in my life. So that's the only pain I've been through, but it's that's a good pain. Yeah.
7: Um now you obviously want to reach out to people who are, might be going through or know someone who's going through a similar situation. Uh
6: there's not enough coverage with it. Um, I once had a, I tried a support group once before and no one turned up, which is fine because it's very hard to to, to get over that, that wall uh, to be yourself and to talk to someone about it. You're trying to cope with it yourself at first to deal with your emotions and then you make that step. So this year I said to myself, I want to help out more people, especially young people. And... And I want to educate doctors more about it rather than someone with alopecia going to them trying to get a prescription and then they're explaining their story all over again because the doctors have not, they do not have enough knowledge about it. During the time that I had to have wigs, I used to have to go to a doctor, explain to each one because I didn't have a clue. And then they used to send me to East Surrey for a five minute appointment for the hospital to turn and and yes you have alopecia we can prove that because you're here and then you're paying 70 pounds towards an nhs wig so it if it was if it was done in a simple way it'll be a lot better for for us and for the doctors but i just don't think they know enough about it
7: so are you hoping that, that that this will now hopefully encourage some sort of change
6: I hope so. I hope so. It happens in one in three people. Um, I'd like there to be more awareness about it because I don't see enough on social media. You get it through more um, Alopecia UK. So, yeah, if I can help out or anyone wanting to message me or if if you want to see me, I'd like to set up another support group or just in person. If it makes you feel more comfortable talking to me alone, that's fine. I'd, I can help out with anything. Uh, mentally, um, information about wigs, information about support groups. So if I can help one person, then I'm just hoping that more would, would come forward, but only in their own time when they feel it's right for them, because it, it takes a lot of confidence to just reach out, especially from a woman's point of view.
1: Ariane Morel talking there to Paul me. For more information, help and advice about alopecia, you can visit the Alopecia UK website at alopecia.org.uk. That's A-L-O-P-E-C-I-A dot org U-K. We'll post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. The Archway Theatre in Hawley is back with a new production, Colder Than Here?, the director of the show, Elodie Foray, joined Paul Told Me this week to tell him more.
8: So, Colder Than Here is um, uh, about a family of four called the Bradleys. Uh, we have Myra and Alec, who are the parents and their two adult daughters called Harriet and Jenna. Uh, Myra has recently found out that she hasn't got very long to live. She's suffering from a terminal illness. Um, but she is so full of life and excitement for... For the life that she has left she decides she wants to she wants to have a green funeral and um she wants to she wants to have it her way so the premise of the play is her finding the perfect burial site for her uh, funeral um but what she's really trying to do is she's trying to get all of the different members of her family to connect with each other so that when she's gone they have these beautiful strong connections
7: how do you approach directing something like that? Because obviously it's a, it's a well-established play, but mm-hmm. you want to put your own kind of directorial spin on it.
8: For sure. I think I'm quite lucky in that I've never seen a production of it. I think sometimes even without meaning to, if you see a production of a play... It that's interesting.
7: So I've never, know, I've never known anyone that's, that's directed, having not seen it before.
8: Yeah. Yeah, because I, I read a lot of plays. So yeah. I read it and I put it forward to, to the council at the theatre because I just thought it was beautiful and perfect. Um, and they asked me if I would direct it. And I, yeah, I was very happy to. Um, so, so in that way, I felt kind of a freedom because I didn't feel like I had to be faithful to any version I'd seen. I didn't feel like I was being subconsciously influenced by any version I'd seen. So really what we started with, and I think the most important thing with theatre generally, is we started with the connections between the characters. Mm. Because I think when you've just got four characters, if you don't believe in those relationships, if they're not really well developed and really three-dimensional, it's kind of not going to be very engaging. Um, especially this play, which is so about you know, connection and family. Uh, so, we just spent so much time. We've talked about these characters so much, all of us. We've come up with the, the smallest details that can colour how, how the characters see each other and how they understand each other.
7: And it's a very deep story as well, because there is that incredible light and shade of.
8: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, the thing about this play is it's, it's genuinely very funny. Um, like uh, I was saying to you earlier, mm. I've, I'm still laughing about it now. Like when I watch it, I'm still laughing sometimes, and I've been watching it since the end of December. Uh, I, just, I just think the delight about it is even though it's a difficult and heavy subject, the actual way that it's presented and given across is, 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 is light and, and funny and, and real, realistic. I think p- people do laugh in, in, in the saddest times as well as the happiest mm. ones.
7: Do you, do you approach directing it from what the audience would, would want to see? or
8: I think... I think it kind of has to. You have to consider a few things. When I when I start a project, the beginning of the project is nothing about the audience experiences, yeah. and it's all about um, the the characters mm. and who they are and how to create believable, engaging. People and then, as you get later on and, and your actors are, are managing to make these, these gorgeous characters, then you start thinking about, okay, now I'm sitting from an audience perspective, what do we need to adjust? What do we need to change? What can make this slightly more you know engaging or, or touching? Uh, yeah, so a bit of both.
7: Mm. If you're a if you're a theatre fan, local theatre fan like I am and like Ellie is, you'll know this is I an mean, epic cast.
8: Oh my goodness, my cast! I uh oh. so yeah, we have um, Ellis Alton uh, as the younger sister Jenna. We have Lauren Fielding as the older sister Harriet. We have Ali Hannant as Myra and Kevin Hawkes as um, Alec, and they are all amazing i mean i couldn't have been blessed with a better cast the audition was so exciting anyway i had a really gorgeous turnout um and then those four actors after uh, it was just a no-brainer it was a no-brainer i I, I tell a lie actually it was a very difficult choice because there was an amazing amount of talent but i'm really happy with the the people that i chose i think they they work so well together they take direction beautifully they they find their characters in ways that you know I I couldn't tell them to. It's just you know if you're talented you're talented and if you're hardworking as well it's a perfect combination.
7: And you can't you couldn't have envisaged their interpretation of it at the start.
8: No, I think as a director you have to you have to go in with a certain vision of the play, but I think you have to be really open to what your actors bring to you or else it's very um it's a very boring process if, if you as a director go I think they're this way you were playing it this way um and I you know I don't care what you say whereas if you go okay um show me what you've got and then let's let's build on that together you know uh, let's see what we agree on what we disagree on sometimes if if an actor makes a choice I'll ask them to explain it to me sort of justify it and if I you know if it makes sense I'm like okay great I, I didn't get it but now I get it uh, and now we can just work on bringing out that idea a bit more. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't. I don't want. I don't. It doesn't feel like um, I'm leading it. It's more like we're kind of all working together to make the best thing that we can.
7: That's that's the important thing, isn't it? The whole cohesion of it. It's just it, it all comes together. It's all a team effort, and it all.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I think if I lost anybody in this group, like. It, cast or crew. If if someone decided they didn't want to do it anymore, I'd be completely scuppered, right? It doesn't matter if I'm in charge of the project, it doesn't matter if I'm the director.
7: Especially with a week to go.
8: <laughs> Especially with a week to go. <laughs> but but it's 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 what I mean is that everyone is important in this production and to uh, not appreciate that I think is uh, a great oversight.
1: LAD Foray in conversation with Paul Tolme earlier this week. Colder than here is on at the Archway Theatre from Tuesday the twenty first of February until Saturday the 4th of March, with the exception of Sunday the 26th and Monday the 27th. The show starts at 7.45pm. For tickets and further information, visit archwaytheatre.com. That's archwaytheatre.com. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.